Welcome to the University of Adversity, where the only rules of the class is to hold your head up high and keep moving forward. Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And now, here's your host, Lance Isios. This episode is brought to you by Mike Young, the makeover master. If you feel your business image might be costing you money, influence, power, and respect, then head over to makeovermaster.com to discover what their complete brand makeover experience is all about. Go check it out right now because everyone deserves to look their best. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of University of Adversity. I'm your host, Lance Isios. We got somebody special on the show today. He's a public servant. He's an educator, a teacher, um, very involved in community, and He's also put himself through law school and created an amazing program that's help, called Think Law that helps all students access, get access to game-changing critical thinking education. He grew up in Brooklyn and is all about serving the community at the best way possible. So I'm excited to have him on today. Colin Seal, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much, Lance. I'm really, really excited to be here and share part of our story. Awesome, man. Awesome. So let's uh let's let's dive deep let's go back so you grew up in brooklyn fill in the gaps for us where uh where you all where it all started yeah yeah this is such an important part of the story too it it, it, so you know every superhero has an origin story right so my origin story started with me being the the super villain actually as a first grader i wasn't just your typical bad first grader i was scratch your head what is wrong with this kid bad i was the kind of guy who uh we had a science teacher who her, her name was like Miss Lipschitz. And how could you not get in trouble if your teacher's <laughs> name was Miss Lipschitz? And she did this, these little labs with us. And I would always cause all this chaos. She once asked me to write a 100 word essay about like my behavior in class. So I did the math in my head and I decided to write, I hate science 32 times because that way I would have four words left over to write. I hate you too. This was me. This was exactly the kind of first grader that I was and a woman who was the paraprofessional, like the teacher's aide in my classroom, she decided to tell my mom I needed to get tested. But not for special education, not for a behavioral program, but for gifted education. She thought that the way that I viewed the world was just different. And the idea of being selected as a gifted and talented student in my neighborhood in Brooklyn meant I got bused to a different school. And it was the craziest thing, Lance, because the reason I call this like a superhero origin story is the same exact behaviors I used to get in trouble for, getting out of my seat, talking to kids, questioning the teacher, were now required behaviors, oh. right? And if you think about like what we're trying to build in this world, like look at the business leaders we praise. Who do we praise? Those that go against the grain, those that march to the beat of their own drummer. We, in fact, literally call them disruptors but we kick disruptive kids out of class. Yeah. Right. So that is really where my journey started. And, you know, it, it was a huge part of opening my mind to what it takes to unleash every kid's full potential and get out of the way as an educator. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because the education system is so messed up, man. It's like, it's so outdated to where we're at as far as like, the way we've grown with technology and the way, you know, people just become more conscious. And it's almost like education was just built on like post-World War II style of education, you know, memorize, 
go to become a factory worker and do these things and not really think and sort of do as you're told, not think for yourself. And if you step outside of that, you get, you know, you get in trouble. So, and, and Lance, what, what I really urge people to think about, right? Because what you're talking about is actually a pretty significant conversation today. How do we essentially future-proof our students? How do we create a space where our kids are going to be able to handle the challenges of the 22nd century? And what's so interesting about this conversation is that we often don't discuss the really unfortunate reality of us leaving genius on the table. And when I talk about leaving genius on the table, I want to talk about like the, 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 the child that you know, the, the, the students you went to school with, they might be in your family even. And we know it, we see it all the time. Kids that are unquestionably brilliant, but for whatever reason, they underachieve. They struggle with motivation. How much do we see this? I think about my experience as an eighth grader in New York, who was like an honor student, double accelerated in multiple classes, but I had 80 absences my first year in high school. I struggled with what I've termed I don't care syndrome because really there was nothing about school on a day-to-day -day basis that would cause me the care. There was no why. It was just a bunch of information that I deemed useless and I honestly felt like there was no challenge there. Lance, I got a phone call from a mom last night a mom of a middle school student, a sixth grader, who rocked it out in elementary school. But then in sixth grade, he only has A's in his robotics class and in the science class, and he's struggling in everything else. And it's like, that's interesting. He's doing well in the classes we kind of would call the hard classes, but he doesn't seem to put forth any effort in classes that are actually applying skills that he's doing in robotics. So what's the gap? The gap is the why. How do we get that why there? And the most interesting revelation around this, Lance, is that the same skills our kids need to be successful in the 22nd century are likely going to be a lot like what made people successful in the 19th century. It's going to sound a lot more like liberal arts. It's going to sound a lot more like being able to analyze multiple perspectives, being able to synthesize something when there's not a whole lot there. So um, that's just been an interesting takeaway when we start thinking about the future and what it means for an education system. Yeah, and I've even thought about how once, you know, we start to shift into all these robots and everybody's on their phones and there's not a lot of human interaction, we're going to have to teach, this is just my theory, we're going to have to teach kids how to be humans again, how to interact because if they're so if they don't have any time to really interact as human beings and mm -hmm. it's all through computers there's going to be yeah. there's going to be a problem later on that i think a skill is going to be is just how do you be human how do you communicate something that we find we take it for granted now but i've just seen the the, the path and how things are shifting so fast and it's and, and i i think that it later on is going to all those basic skills are going to come back and they have to be taught again, which is, which is crazy. So it's, it's so funny you say that, you know, like uh, spending many years of my life in Las Vegas, Nevada, right? One of the global uh, 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 hotspots for, for tourism. Um, it's so interesting to see like the service industry seems to be indestructible, right? There's just something about it. And in fact, Lance, 
concierge services are starting to become a really big thing for people because, you know, I just saw an article about this today. There's a university that's like offering a class in adulting because people don't even know how to do laundry, right? So it's like there's this human element to help people get through life where it sometimes transcends tech, right? It's this idea of like, well, it's the same trend that contributes to the idea that I'm actually a computer science graduate, Lance. Um, I went to Syracuse University, uh, uh, majored in computer science, and I was like a good enough student. But what's so funny about that is the the all-star A students Many of them have been laid off in the last three to five years because it turns out there's actually not a huge market in being socially awkward. Yeah. So they can ship coding jobs to any country in the world, but what they can't ship are the kind of people that can speak to the techies and speak to the regular people. They can't ship the people that can not just problem solve, but problem find and speak about those problems in the way that actually leads to new innovations. They can't replace the idea that like making sales and making people see that there's an important and urgent need for your solution, like sales drives revenue. You need the people to do that. Like there's not going to be a way you can replace that with technology. So you're right. And I 100% agree with the idea that we maybe should stop calling relationship building and communication and critical thinking soft skills. They're the hardest skills to develop. Yeah, totally. I, I truly believe as I've, I've sat and I thought about, well, what is, the, what is the most important thing? What do I value? What do I see in others? And it's communication. Mm-hmm. If you can communicate effectively and efficiently at getting your message to somebody, no matter what recession happens, no matter what happens, you'll be able to, you'll be able to get through whatever it is because you can convey that message to that other human and you can mm-hmm. get that connection. And I truly, how do you feel about that? Like, what do you feel is that skill, that human skill that you, you feel is, is important at, at thriving as a human? Like, what do you think is, the, is that main thing? I think it is the idea of understanding humans. It's building empathy. And what's so interesting about building empathy is some people might see that as a very sophisticated mindset that can only be developed with all sorts of like special training and analysis. But I'm like, well, if we're doing it the right way, this kind of social emotional learning, this kind of emotional intelligence could be developed in kindergarten. So with our work with Think Law, for instance, um, we help educators teach critical thinking using real life legal cases in upper grades. But in lower grades, we use fairy tales and nursery rhymes. Here's why. There's a lot of shady characters in children's stories right? So if we have our kids looking at Goldilocks and the three bears, and instead of just looking at her as this innocent woman in the forest, we start wondering, huh, what's this deal with like breaking and entering into somebody's home, getting all up in their beds, eating their porridge, right? We start developing (laughs) these different sense of perspective on how it impacts other people. In fact, we actually ask, what can Goldilocks do to fix the mess that she's made? We look at these three blind mice, and we ask a question that most people don't usually ask. We ask, What do you think it's like to be a blind mouse? How might that make your life challenging or difficult? What is it like to be a farmer's wife? Like, can there be another way to avoid the tragic mishap of having these poor blind mice also now have no tails because they got cut off viciously by this farmer's wife? 
And now you're talking about a classroom where by the time a kid is in kindergarten, they're already getting access to the kind of 21st century questions and being able to ask these questions on their own to truly transform what it means to be able to put themselves in other people's shoes and start to develop the emotional intelligence that I said should not be a soft skill because it's actually one of the hardest skills to develop. Definitely. Man, so much, so much solid value there. That's so true. And getting into these young minds in the right way and, and, and shaping them and understanding so that they take an interest because that's what it is when you're young. Like if you don't, if you're not interested in it, you're not really going to care about it. And you know, it's interesting because there was, I could be doing the same subject in school. And if I had a teacher that I tuned out and was boring, I wouldn't listen, but I could be taught the same material in history by somebody in, that could connect with me on a level where I would be like, wow, this is amazing. I can't wait till school the next day, you know? And it's, it's all, it's, 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 it's how you teach these kids and condition them to want to learn. And it's, it's, it's so amazing how you said that. So now, obviously you're a very intelligent guy. You, you know, you were smart in school growing up. You like, tell us about, have you always been, have things always worked out for you smoothly through the journey or let's, let's talk about some adversity and challenges that you faced sure. along the way that has sure. helped shape you in to like, you know, you got such an awesome education and then you went to go to law school, create this amazing program to help kids with critical thinking. You know, tell us about some stuff that you overcome over the years. So I told you that um, the, I, 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 I would say my first initial struggle was the idea of struggling, period. Yeah. And I say this because, you know, a lot of young people have this experience where you go for most of your life in as a child and as an adolescent where if you are good at school, if you are kind of quick on your toes in a lot of ways, school is kind of an easy thing. You're not, so what, 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 what happens is you actually don't have any study habits. You've never really had to study. You've never had to experience like any sort of struggle. And we almost get to a point where you equate being smart as this idea that like it shouldn't take effort. If I'm smart, then I shouldn't have to study. It should just come to me naturally. When I got to high school and I went to the Bronx High School of Science, which is one of those schools in New York City you had to take a test to get into. And it was very different than my neighborhood middle school. It was really rigorous and everybody there was like really nerdy and they just expressed their smartness in a different way and it felt like I just couldn't sit there and skate by relaxing and get the information. I actually needed to try, but I didn't really know how to try. It didn't even occur to me that trying made sense. I just felt like I wasn't smart. So what happened was I stopped going to classes. I stopped trying to do homework that I didn't know how to do, so I just didn't do it. I just stopped really pushing myself to levels that I knew that I could figure out. I knew that I could do better. I just didn't do better because that meant I had to try. I had to put forth effort. So my first year of high school, like I failed um, a couple of classes. I, I actually had to go to summer school, but decided not to go because I don't really have a real reason except I was 14 years old and I decided not to go. Like I choose not to go to summer school. So I had to repeat these classes again the next year and um, slow down the process as a student that had came into high school accelerated to, to, to make graduation a little bit more difficult for me. Um, and I got to a point where 
the guidance counselor actually had to take a referral of me because at a certain point, you get close to getting kicked out of school with too many absences. And I remember being in her office. Her name was Miss Simon. And Miss Simon brings me to her office and she shows me this attendance sheet. And she's like, okay, Colin, you can take this attendance sheet and you can have your uh, teachers like sign off to verify that you were in class that day. But like, it's totally your choice. You don't have to use this, but some students have found this helpful. And as someone that had been going through the motions my whole life, that was the first time I felt like I had a choice. And I don't know what kind of mind tricks Miss Simon was playing on me at that time, but it was like, okay, like, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get my teachers to try this thing out. And next thing you know, you start going through the motions of like having your teacher sign off on this little thing. And next thing you know, your teacher is giving you a little bit of encouragement. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad to see you in class today. And next thing you start feeling like you're less of a number, you actually are somebody that people recognize. And slowly but surely, I'm like, oh, maybe I will study for this test. Maybe I will raise my hand and ask a question. Um, and after a while, you start to get your swagger back. And I was like, man, like these people are just full of it. Like they're not, they're just nerdy. Nerdy doesn't actually mean smart. Like I'm still me. I'm still from Brooklyn. Like I still understand things in ways that they might not understand. I have like a better ability to communicate things than a lot of them did. And it just kind of boosted my confidence and my morale. And I remember like the second semester of the sophomore year when my grades did a huge jump. I got my report card. I walk right out of my class uh, as soon as we got it. I just walked out. I didn't even say anything to the teacher. Just stormed out, went to the counselor's office, and she was on her way to look for me. And she was prouder than me than any adult had ever been at that point in my life. And from that point, it was confirmed that, like, I was going to be a guy that just pushed through. But the truth is, like, that, that, that wasn't the only experience, but that was the first experience with adversity and failure that I'd met with and persevered through. Right. Awesome. So, yeah. What about once you, so you're obviously taking on quite a bit, you know, you're, you're educating people, you're going, you're going through law school, like what kind of challenges and what kind of different things did you go through and maybe how you can, you know, help other people understand like you're obviously an intelligent guy but yeah. a lot of people aren't as gifted at staying organized like including myself at taking on a bunch of projects and being able to you know organize it in a way that you can still excel like what about what about those challenges that you went through and being able to overcome those for the yeah. person listening so so um I like to tell a story that kind of typifies what, exactly what you're talking about, Lance. Okay. Um, when I first started as, as a computer science major, I didn't actually know how to code. I just thought it would be a cool career because it was the year 2000 and everybody was making all this money in the dot-com boom. So it made sense, right? Go to school, make some money, call it a day. So I go and I become, uh, I'm, I'm sitting in my first computer lab class and literally People have finished the lab in five minutes and they are laughing about how easy it is. And I'm sitting there and I haven't even turned on my computer. I literally have not figured out how to turn on my computer at the point where people are just walking out. I finally get a chance to like look at the assignment, try to figure out what they're asking me to do, but I'm so scratching my head. And meanwhile, kids are leaving, kids are leaving. Like 
And I'm looking down at my blank sheet of paper. I'm looking up at my blank computer screen and I'm like, all right, like I've got to figure this out. Like I'm a smart guy. I've been here before. I can do this. But then by the time I look around, there is nobody in this computer lab except for me and the graduate assistant. And the graduate assistant comes up to me and is like, hey, Colin, like, are you done? And I look at my blank piece of paper. I look at my blank computer screen and I say, yep, turn it off. And in my mind, that was the moment that I was going to be dropping out of school. And I remember like what it meant to feel like such a failure. And I called my mother and, you know, my mother is from Barbados. I'm actually the first generation of my family to grow up in this country. I think about what it meant to grow up with my father being locked up for selling drugs and really never having a lot of money or no real backup plan. It was college or bust. And my mother told me, like, not this profound piece of advice. She was like, you've got to figure it out, Colin. You've got to figure it out. You have to. And she just got off the phone with me. And it wasn't anything profound. But I realized at that moment that when it comes to successful people and people that are less successful, there's one common trait that you tend to see. Every single person gets to a point where they don't feel like doing the hard thing. People that are more successful hunker down and figure out a way to get it done by any means necessary anyway. They just do it. They just figure out a way to do that thing. And when I think about any moment in life where I felt stuck, where I felt like this is going to be too hard, I have not qualified to do this, nothing's prepared me to do this, remembering that like this is part of the journey. Hunkering down and doing the hard thing is going to be what creates opportunity for me. That's always been what has allowed me to persevere through that adversity. Yeah, that's, um, it's a common thing, right? You, you need to be, you need to be committed and you have to put in the work, you know, and, but not everybody has that awareness in those skills. Let's, let's go back just a bit. Let's go back to your childhood. So I wanted to touch on your, you know, your father was in prison. You're growing up in Brooklyn. Now it's not, I mean, I, I haven't been, but I mean, I'm sure it's not the, you know, it's probably a little bit scary growing up. There's probably a lot of things happening, you know, Obviously, you were raised, you were raised properly, and you you got installed a lot of good values. But tell us the struggles you went growing up, and how did your mom and how did dealing with your dad being in jail really, you know, install these things and, and put these beliefs into you so that you were later able to be successful? So I like to actually clarify a couple of things because I, I I think that being a child of uh, have, having a family member that's incarcerated. Um, I don't think there's enough people that are brave enough to kind of open up and talk about their stories. But the reality is it was probably a good thing growing up that like one, my father really wasn't a big part of my life, even when he was not incarcerated. And two, it might have actually been worse for me in a lot of ways if he did play a role in my life. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I like to kind of start out with that of like, my mom was friggin' amazing, even though um, she was not like, you know, I, somehow she was a master navigator of all of the systems. I mean, I actually used to have a really bad speech impediment. She was able to make sure that I got like speech therapy through the school. Like she is a, she was an entrepreneur before I knew what an entrepreneur was. 
she was the definition of like working under constraints and optimizing limited resources. That was her bread and butter, literally making a dollar out of 15 cents. Like that was who she was. So in many ways, that marks my childhood more than anything else. So like I'm the New York, I'm the Brooklyn dude who like somehow was seeing Broadway shows like they were played out. I'm like, I'm tired of seeing all these Broadway shows. Meanwhile, my friends on the block like barely made it to Manhattan, right? So like it was a very, very different experience, even though it wasn't Brooklyn, New York, even though there were a lot of gangs in my community. I, I just had a very different experience. I even remember one time in middle school, there was a kid who he was in a gang. He had straight Fs on his report card. And like we, we, it was the last day of school. And he's like, yo, like, yo, let, let me see your report card. And he saw it. And like, I knew my mom was not going to be that happy because I had like A's and a couple of B's. And he's like, wow, you got this report card? Well, let me see yours. And the straight ass, he's like, huh. He's like, yo, but you know what? Like, I don't really do school like that, but like you do your thing. And what's so interesting, what most people don't realize is like, like a lot of people that get involved in gang stuff, like they end up in violent interactions with other people that are involved in that life. But the truth is, a lot of kids that I knew that were involved in that sort of stuff, like, they weren't beating me up. They weren't, like, threatening me. They were happy to see me do my thing. Like, th it really wasn't a thing. So um, growing up, that, that, that kind of was, was, was the eye-opening experience. And then the other thing I would say is the first time I encountered philosophers, scholars, was in my barbershop. Right. Because the experience of being in a black barbershop means that you just are not getting your hair cut because everybody is doing some tirade on some issue. So they're turning off their clippers and they're making their case to the jury of people sitting now waiting to get their hair cut. And they're like being super persuasive. They're using all these different evidence as part of their reasoning. They're using humor. They're using all of these different rhetorical devices. But of course, we are not built to count the assets of a high poverty community. We only look at the deficits, right? We don't think about the fact that at a point in my life, when I lived in a one bedroom apartment with nine people, that like as a kid, that was the best time of my life because there was always somebody to talk to, to play games with. You want to talk about what it means to have thousands and thousands and thousands of extra words spoken to you in conversation, what that does to your vocabulary acquisition, like what it means to play no holds barred Scrabble with an uncle who was in college who would like not take it easy on me because I was only seven. Like that changed everything for me. Just being around family members all the time. So like, um, I always want to make a, a clear point to like show like on paper, it looks like, Growing up without a lot of money, growing up with a dad that was incarcerated, were all of these things that were against me. But I think part of really understanding adversity is stepping back and thinking like, how am I succeeding, not despite, but because of this? What is this stimulating in me because of the struggle that I'm going through right now? Right. Like it's happening for you and not to you. It's like a lesson. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Reframing it. It's so I, important. I like how you, you're painting a different picture because you generally, you know, everybody thinks you grew up in that area, you know, this and that and the stories. It's like, it's always a negative sort of story. But what you've done here is you've kind of painted a, an optimistic 
perspective. And it's, it's kind of interesting because you can clearly tell that from your results in your life and what you're doing, that you are an optimistic human being. And it was, it's obvious that your mom installed that in you. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to go and talk about this stuff, but kind of, you can shine a light on the positives of it, right? Because you tend to kind of, everybody goes down that rabbit hole of how bad it was and what happened to me. And although some people's lives may have been terrible, I just like how you sort of have painted a picture of like, well, what are the positives of those situations and how have you grown from them? Right. Because that's super important. And with university of adversity, it's like, well, that's the whole point is like, well, what am I learning from this and how am I overcoming this struggle so that I can use this, you know, to help create what I want to create. So like, exactly, exactly. So, so now, okay. With think law, like this is really interesting to me. You're, you're helping kids with critical thinking. Now, Maybe a couple examples, I mean, recently, like up to bring us to where we are now of like some, some students that you've helped and, and some stories of transformation, like maybe of their adversity or struggles, and you've been able to help them through critical thinking education for them to go on to do cool things or at least become, you know, a better human being or whatever it is. So let me start with kind of saying that the whole idea of how we developed ThinkLaw was 100% based off of the lean startup model, right? Where we were going to start something really small, get some feedback, and kind of iterate based off of the feedback that we got to improve what we did. So at the time, I had a couple of lessons that I wrote in Microsoft Word, and I just wanted to get teachers to try it out, give me their feedback, and see how it went from there. So um, there was a first-year teacher who was using this case. And there's a case in law school that I thought about as soon as I started ThinkLaw, and I was like, this is the case that shows that anybody can use this thinking like a lawyer strategy to understand critical thinking. And this case had to do with a five-year-old boy who saw his aunt about to sit down in a chair. And right before his aunt sat down in his chair, this five-year-old nephew decides to pull the chair out. She falls, breaks her hip, has all these expensive medical injuries, and decides to sue her own five-year-old nephew for battery. A battery happens when you make intentional contact that causes damages. So in the classroom, most kids would be like, that's ridiculous. There's no way this kid could be liable for battery. He's only five. But then they're forced to think about the aunt's perspective and the kind of argument she will make about him seeing her about to sit him pulling out the chair at the exact same time. And now it looks intentional. And now it's like, well... He's only five. He doesn't understand the consequences, but should that matter? If he did it on purpose, should he be responsible for those consequences anyhow? Um, and then kids start thinking about, well, maybe he's trying to be a gentleman, and this is just part of, like, you know, getting the timing wrong as a five-year-old. But at the, long, at the end of the day, our kids are making predictions and inferences about what might be motivating this lawsuit. They're making public policy evaluations, asking questions like, what would the world look like if it was okay to go around suing people for practical jokes and they couldn't recover because of their age versus a world where it was okay to sue five-year-olds for practical jokes that go wrong? Which world do you prefer to live in? And what happened when we tried out this lesson, Lance, is uh, the teacher starts out the lesson with the question of when is it okay to hit somebody without getting in trouble for it? Because we believe in these things that we call think starters, questions that are universal, that everybody has an answer to. And a young man answers the question, and the teacher seems so baffled at the fact that this young man is talking. And me watching this young man throughout the rest of the period in the class, 
I'm like, okay, he's clearly the leader of this class. He's clearly the guy who every day is just running the show because he was just regulating the class. He had all the greatest ideas. He was really facilitating conversations in a small group. But the teacher seemed so awkward the whole time. And in fact, when the class ended, instead of talking to me, the teacher ran down the hallway and started going door to door telling teachers something. And I'm like, what is wrong with this guy? So he calls me when he gets home. And I'm like, hey, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you acting so weird? Why'd you run away at the class? He's just like, Colin, you don't understand. That kid has never spoken the whole year. He has never done one homework assignment. He hasn't written a single thing in classwork. His mom is on meth. He's had a ton of absences. He has one of the toughest home lives of anybody that we work with here. Wow. But there was something about these questions. There was something about the instruction that you grounded in a sense of fairness and justice that awoke the sleeping giant. Wow. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Cause every time I think about this, I'm like, okay, like that's the one story that we know. Huh. Right. And if we think about the challenges that we have faced and the, 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 the intolerable practice of leaving genius on the table, it is so important to develop the sorts of curricular supports that make it easy for our teachers to just set our kids on fire, give them the kind of instruction that is going to completely unleash everything a kid's got to offer. Because for that young man, that young man was going to go to the edge of the earth to fight for this five-year-old boy. And if they get used to that level of commitment in their learning, it just can't be let go. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's, it's all about that developing these minds for the future. And, and that's just such an awesome thing that you're doing, like to be able to, you know, reposition their thinking about it. And, and it's so true. Like having the two ultimatives, like what world would you rather live in? You know? And it's like, it's a good way to think. I mean, it's crazy thinking about suing a five-year-old, right? Like, but if you're conditioned to think that's okay, then that's kind of how your society and people around you will think. And that's the problem is that some people think that's okay. And, and that, that philosophy right. gets passed on to other people. And then all of a sudden you got this like, right. really disgusting, you know, way of thinking. Wow. But so then, right. But, but, but when we get out of the black and white, right, our kids need to be in the gray. Like yeah. the challenges of today are not black and white challenges, right? Like they're, 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 they're much more nuanced than that. So it's not that you can never sue a five-year-old. Got to, we've got to be really careful in what conditions that might be appropriate, right? True. So, like, that's kind of the nuance that we need to get our kids thinking about. And, 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 and that's where we start to really develop the habits and mindsets of critical thinkers that we need to be able to change the world. So, okay, what, do you, what are some tactical things, like, let's say for our listeners listening that have gone through some stuff and they need to look at, learn to look at things a little bit differently with critical thinking, what are some, maybe some like action steps somebody could apply today in their lives that you teach? Okay. So I'm going to talk to the parents here. Okay. Um, if you are a parent or if you interact with nieces and nephews, do me a favor, stop answering their questions. Stop it. Stop helping them do stuff. 
Just don't. Don't do it. I always tell the story of my mother-in-law. We're out for brunch one day, and my daughter, she's five years old, and she loves putting lots of syrup on her pancakes. This particular restaurant, the syrup was so thick. So she went to try to, like, pour it out using her right hand, and it just wasn't coming out. She tried with her left hand, still not coming out. But I saw the brain working. I saw like she was ticking, she was thinking, and I'm like, all right, baby, you got this. And it turned out this syrup was so thick, you probably have to turn it completely upside down for it to come out. But before she was able to have her victorious moment of figuring out her on her own, my mother-in-law was like, oh, baby, let me come help you. And I scream out this loudest no you could hear of, like, no, and the waitresses are looking at me, and all the other patrons of the restaurant are looking at me like I'm a crazy guy. And I think two things. First, perhaps I overreacted. But the second thing I think is like, this is where it starts. This is where kids start to develop a sense of learned helplessness. When we, when they ask us how to spell a word, and we just give them the spelling instead of asking, well, how do you think you spell it? When they ask us for help on doing something, I was like, well, why don't you try to do it first? And then we can look at how it looks and then see if we can fix it. Like, we need to create independent thinkers. And a lot of times we are well-intentioned and we want to help our kids. But we overhelp. And by overhelping, we underprepare. We underprepare them for the 21st century challenges that they need to absolutely be prepared for going forward. So that is my biggest challenge. Stop helping kids. Stop, like, answering all of their questions. Put it on them to ask why. Put it on them to do the research and to think about things. We live in a world where so much information is on their fingertips, but we have to give the mindset and the willingness to give our kids the intellectual curiosity to actually seek out the answer to those questions on their own. Very cool, man. Super, that's so true, right? Like, I love that because kids need to figure, figure shit out like, as they go. And it's not, you're not always doing them a service by just helping them out. And you gotta, that's how you learn. And and I love that. And I I think a lot of people, you know, could, could apply that in their lives. You know, like what, what what else were you going to say? You had another thing as well. Um, so I could just talk for years, but (laughs) if, 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 if there was any other thing that I think is really important to push, it's the idea that like, we cannot create automatons that are just so glued to the idea of having a right or a wrong answer. And to get to that space, we need to start thinking about what types of questions we're asking people to do. We need to think about incorporating more of a challenge. My daughter gets 10 spelling words. What does she have to do with these spelling words every week? Well, they ask her every day to write them over three times, right? So that's a boring rote memorization task. And then she has to write a sentence using those words or give a sentence for each one of those words. And I can see the look on my daughter's face. It's dreadful. I can't believe I've had to do this boring old stuff. So one day I ask her, you know what? How about instead of doing 10, 10 of these sentences, what if you gave me two sentences, but the sentences have to use five of those words in a way that makes sense? Now she's like, ooh, that's different. 
That's a twist. Hmm. I'm game. Sign me up for that. Sign me up for more of that. Right? That's not what you're asking us to do. The thing that's a little easier for us to grab, quicker for us to process whether they got our right or wrong. But because the world is not going to be so great, we need to be honest about the fact that right or wrong is not going to do it. We dig a little bit deep beyond the black and the white. And by giving our kids spaces where they get to play in that play space on a regular basis, that's how we create the 22nd century people that we need. Right. Awesome, man. That's uh, super valuable. And, and, and shaping these minds at a young age is just so important. And what you're doing is just, is, is great, you know? So where can everybody find you, man? Where, where's the best place? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you, you definitely, if, if, to learn more about ThinkLaw, you're going to want to look at our website, www.thinklaw.us. But please, like to um, follow us on a regular basis on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us at ThinkLawUS. And if you want to dig in more to my random thoughts on the universe, follow me on Instagram at Colin Seal, which is C-O-L-I-N-S-E-A-L-E, or at Colin E. Seal on Twitter. Awesome. And that's again, C-O-L-I-N-S-E-A-L-E. We'll have that in the show notes. I'm definitely going to follow you too, man. I love your philosophy on life. And uh, I, um, I think everybody can benefit from, from what you're saying and critical thinking. So super cool, man. Um, make sure to follow him, guys. And gals, like he's got some really cool stuff and um, lots of value that we can all learn from. So if you came, this is one question. One, I don't usually like to have like a formula of questions in my shows. I like to let it roll. But this is one that I like to ask everybody at the end. Being, you know, the theme University of Adversity, what is the one thing that jumps out at you that you could give to somebody as a tip to overcome adversity so that they can go on to create the life that they're meant to create? So I talked a little bit earlier about how um, it's really important to, to, to just hunker down and do the hard thing, but the hunkering down is sometimes the challenge, right? So I, because I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, I watch a lot of Moana. It's just the movie that we just are watching right now. And one of the things I think that is really interesting is that her hardest point of the movie, she channels the strength of her ancestors. I think it is so important that we recognize that in the course of human history, almost every generation before us has had it harder than we have had. So when I think about the courage and bravery that they have had to show to get to the point and the struggles that they've had to overcome, it just changes my perspective on the challenge that's in front of me. And it makes me feel like I can actually get this done with so much more grace and so much less pressure than they ever have had to deal with. So it makes me view the present as a gift because I am privileged to stand on the shoulder of such giants. Amazing, man. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I don't want to take too much of your time. I really appreciate you taking time in your day to chat with us and share your story and what you're doing. It's it's amazing, and I, I look forward to you know people connecting and listening to this. So, all right, thank all right. you, well, so, thank you much. so much, Lance. All right, have an amazing day, Colin. Thanks, man. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. Hey, everybody! Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got some value from that. Without you guys, this is impossible. So, I really, really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode and got value from it, 
Go ahead and rate it, review it, hit that subscribe button. We want to get this to as many people as possible. We want this thing to grow. So go ahead, rate, review, subscribe. And I can't wait for the next episode. Thank you so much. You just finished another class at the University of Adversity. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and tune in again next time for more life lessons with Lance ECOs.